Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise in settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement consulting. Without further delay, here's another episode of Trial Lawyer View with Adam Shea. Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, the podcast that brings you inside the world of litigation and the fascinating stories behind some of the most significant trial lawyers in the country. Today, my guest is Adam Shea. He's a nationally recognized trial lawyer with decades-long track record of securing justice for individuals and families in catastrophic injury and wrongful death cases. With extensive experience and a passion for advocating on behalf of the harmed, Adam has made a significant impact in Los Angeles County, Orange County, his home territory, and in many other parts of the country. Uh, And I want to make sure I get it right, so I'm going to read through the rest of his bio. Throughout his career, Adam has achieved remarkable results in cases involving automotive and tire product defects, bus and truck collisions, and claims of defective fuel systems and restraint systems. His expertise has led to some of the largest jury verdicts and settlements in California. As a founding partner of Panache Boyle Ravaputi, Adam is committed to helping those affected by negligence and wrongful conduct, seeking justice and holding accountable those responsible. Join us as we deep dive into Adam's legal journey, uh, exploring some of the cha- challenges he's faced and the strategy he employs and the impacts he's made on consumer safety. With his dedication to clients and his passion for upholding ethical standards, Adam embodies the essence of a true trial lawyer. Adam, welcome to Trial Lawyer View. Thrilled to have you join me as a guest today. So appreciate you taking the time to join me. Hey, Jason, thanks a lot. Happy to be here and uh, look forward to spending some time with you. So as I said in your introduction, you're a nationally recognized trial lawyer. You've achieved some remarkable success in catastrophic injury and wrongful death cases wanted to ask you what initially drew you to this area of law and what drives your passion for advocating on behalf of individuals and families. I, I know from my research that you worked closely with Brian Panish in the early 90s and I heard you talk about getting to see the magnitude of cases and the ability to make a difference and you also talked about your sports background driving you as a lawyer which is something that resonated with me and, and my background in athletics and that drive for, for helping people. But I'm just curious about how you got your start and why this is all so such a passion for you. You know, it's kind of funny how I got into this line of work. Uh, going into college, I thought I either wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon or a lawyer. And after uh, chemistry kicked my butt for a couple of years at UCLA, I decided the medicine route might not be the best for me. So uh, I started working in a law firm, but doing something totally different. I mean, this was all as an undergrad. And uh, my wife and I, we got engaged right after the first year of law school. I figured I better get a job and start making a little bit of money. And it was very fortuitous that I answered an ad. And this is back before the web, the internet days, where you couldn't just look on your phone to see what a firm did. So I actually showed up mostly because the hours seemed like they worked for my school schedule. And uh, turns out the firm was one of the best, if not the best firm in California, representing plaintiffs. And it was just very fortunate. Um, After a couple months of being a law clerk there, I actually got assigned to work directly as Brian Panish's law clerk. And, And I really had no idea going in that that personal injury and wrongful death cases were handled at that level and that caliber. I mean, I I grew up in Orange County, which is sort of conservative. Uh, Lots of comments growing up hearing about ambulance chasers and all that. So, you know, when I got to the first firm that I started working at where I was working with Brian, um, 
you know, I just saw the caliber of cases, the magnitude of injuries, you know, the, the detail workup that went into a product defect case or, you know, an airline case, a helicopter, a bad trucking accident. And it just became, you know, you talked about sports. And almost all of us were, you know, frustrated ex-jocks. You know, we played a variety of sports, but we brought that sort of, still had that competitive spirit and brought it into the competition of going up against the big product manufacturers or insurance companies and their teams of lawyers. And it really was inspiring and loved the challenge. And that was back in 1991. So, you know, we're going back 32 years ago. And that's where it all started. You've been involved, as you just talked about, these cases that um, automotive and tire product defects, um, bus, truck collisions, tire failures, vehicle crash worthiness, um, which are all really complicated cases to litigate. What are a few of the unique challenges you've faced in these types of cases and how do you navigate the complex technical and legal aspects to ultimately secure justice for your clients? You know, I would say that the, the sort of the, the difficulties, the challenges have to do with the manufacturers, you know, despite what some people think, they don't just roll over. You know, they do not want to have their product called defective. And so that, that was sort of, I handled all kinds of cases at the first firm with Brian and, and, and a number of other very well-regarded attorneys um, who are still friends. Uh, but, you know, going up against the teams of, whether it was insurance, defense, and big teams, because the cases that we were handling had such high value. I mean, the cases we were handling, if it wasn't a, a death, you know, it was probably, you know, paralysis, quad or para, might be really bad burn injury, uh, could be traumatic brain injury. I mean, big damage cases. So, the other side, you know, they, they defended it to the hilt. And that was both a challenge and an inspiration to, you know, try and beat them and do the best job that we could for our clients. Um, on the product defect side, you know, I, didn't, I don't have an engineering background, but that sort of information just always came easy to me. So I, I like that kind of detail of really trying to dig in on why was a product defective, how could it have been made better? You know, was it feasible? And really digging in, and I really enjoy working with our technical experts over the years. So um, those are some of the challenges that I had, and, and it made those challenges, you know, a real good part of the job, made it interesting every day to come in and learn something new and have to figure things out. And you get, everybody comes to you, we get a lot of cases referred to us by other lawyers. So. Yeah, anytime they've got a bad injury and there was a bad wreck, you know, they're sure that the airbag should have saved the person. They're sure that, you know, the fuel system shouldn't have caught fire. And, of course, that's not the case. You know, some of the wrecks are just so bad, there's nothing that can be done. Um, sometimes it's, you know, engine fluids caught on fire, it had nothing to do with the fuel system. And that's a difficult thing to protect, the engine fluids. There's a lot of them that are flammable. So really having to get into the weeds and look at the details and really figure out what's going on and going up against very worthy opposition. So like I said, that, that makes for a challenge, but it makes it more interesting in my mind. Yeah, I've seen from the inside some of these product liability cases litigated in the caliber of lawyer and the teams and who you're up against it's pretty big challenge you know they're they've got all the dollars behind them I mean, particularly when it's an auto manufacturer and you know or tire manufacturer it's tough going to fight those those folks with the resources that they've got and it's really it's kind of a small community relatively speaking both on the plaintiff side and the defense side so you know some of the people that i've been going up against representing auto manufacturers. I mean, we were we were going up against each other right out of, you know, passing the bar exam, and we've been going at it for 30 years. And same with the tire manufacturers. I mean, it's really a, a small group of attorneys who 
defend the tire manufacturers. So we've gotten to know them over the years. Uh, I get along with most of them pretty well because you know you're it's it's a stressful line of work. It's pretty intense, and you know sometimes you're at each other's throats and uh, not getting along so well. But for the most part, you've got good relationships, good enough with a lot of them, and and they're very well trained. I mean, it's not just not not to disparage uh, insurance defense lawyers, but but the people who are representing the manufacturers tend to have been doing it for a long time, tend to be well trained. Uh, they they know the script, they know what what they're after, and uh, they're they're definitely worthy opponents. So I wanted to ask you about. A case that maybe stands out in your mind because you've you've gotten some uh, incredibly large jury verdicts and settlements on behalf of your clients. Could you share one of the most memorable cases you've handled and walk us through the strategies and key factors that contributed to achieving such a remarkable result? Sure. Um, you know, I, I would say two cases come to mind that sort of fit what you're talking about there, Jason. One was called Lampy versus General Tire. Uh, represented a young woman named Cynthia Lampy. Uh, you know, tire failure, car lost control, rolled over. Uh, she was quadriplegic. Um, and we thought we, you know, we had a good case, but true to form, I mean, the tire manufacturers, first they were blaming the car. They the car had problems. Uh, then they are saying, you know, tire failures are controllable events. They, it shouldn't lead to a loss of control. That's one of their big fights, and they're always blaming the driver, saying the driver didn't do a good enough job of controlling the vehicle. Um, and, and then just a whole host of this tire, if it was, you know, the typical defenses, hit some sort of road impact, big pothole, something in the road, that's what really caused it to fail. It had nothing to do with a manufacturing defect or a design defect. So all of those different issues. And then on top of that, you know, we, we're focusing so much on liability issues. But then, you know, you got someone who's a quadriplegic and you really got to tell their story. And so you've got to get really in tight with the medical people and, and with your client to explain that journey of two, three, four years from the time the injury happened until you're at trial. So you know that case did go to trial. It, uh, it back in the early 2000s rep, um, resulted in a, at the time I believe it was the largest tire defect verdict in the country. Uh, I don't know if it still is, but it was uh, a little north of 55 million dollars back in the early 2000s. So that you know it was big money. Um, we thought that we had enough to get punitive damages. The jury did not go with us on punitive damages, but you know they recognized what a great uh, young lady Cynthia was, and that's why the verdict was as large as it was. Um, so th there was a lot of challenges there. And, and you know the other case that I would tell you about, Jason, that was significant, because I turns out I knew the family, part of the family, a case called uh, Barber versus Mossy Ford. And uh, the Barber case also re came about because of a tire failure. And uh, as it turned out, that they had been represented by another law firm initially. And basically what happened, there was a family from San Diego. They were going out to Colorado, and they had a tire failure, um, and both parents died. Uh, and then there were young kids, three young boys. Um, and so when we got asked to meet with the family, I was meeting with all the grandparents down in San Diego, and I was like, well, who's raising the three kids? And they mentioned an aunt and her husband, and they mentioned, oh, the husband's an attorney. Oh, who's he? Oh, what's the guy's name? Maybe I know him. Frank. Oh, what's Frank's last name? Turns out his name's Frank Sandelman. Well, Frank and I were in the same fraternity at UCLA. And, but we weren't, we hadn't been real tight after we graduated. We, you know, we saw each other, but not often. So he was just doing his best with his wife to raise their three nephews. And 
all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second, I know this guy. And, and so, you know, became very personal um, and, and had all of, the, all of the difficult issues that you see in a product defect case. You know, there were issues about whether the dad was driving too fast, whether the dad should have been able to control the vehicle. But we didn't just have a tire defect in that case. It was a converted Ford van. And so, and it was converted in the worst way possible by what appeared to be a reputable company. But I mean, talk about looking at an engineering analysis and knowing that somebody really didn't do a good job. So we, we had claims going against the tire manufacturer. We had claims going against Ford for the Econoline van. We had claims going against the conversion company. We had claims going against another company that put a lift kit on these Econoline vans, which were historically very, <laughs> very prone to rollover, for sure. And, and then they made it that much higher. They raised the center of gravity and made it that much worse. And then it turns out the tire that failed had been repaired by a dealership down in San Diego called Mossy Ford. And they did the repair. Basically, the tire should have never been repaired. So you take all of those issues, you got these three great little boys, and their mom and dad died. So it was easy to you know, get into, but you can imagine, you're not just trying to prove one product defect. I mean, we were looking at like five different defect issues with five different defendants. And the case ended up, we settled with everybody except for Mossy Ford. Mossy Ford continued to say they'd done nothing wrong. And their, their lawyer was a very good lawyer. He used to defend Goodyear in California. So he knew tire issues. He was defending the, the dealership and they were taking the position that the repair of the tire wasn't the reason that it fell apart. Once again, it must have hit some, what I call the phantom impact. It hit a big curb or a rock or a pothole, and that's what caused it to fall apart. Um, so we, we went in, going into trial, I think we had settlements with all the other defendants in the neighborhood of 10 million, 11 million, something like that. And we went to trial against Mossy Ford down in San Diego. And we've got a verdict in favor of the boys against Mossy. Um, got another out of them. I think the verdict was in the neighborhood of 14 million. So combined, you know, combined between the prior pretrial settlements and then the trial, it was in the neighborhood of about 25 million. Um, and it, you know, made a difference. I've, I've followed these kids. They ended up moving from San Diego because Frank and his wife lived in the town next to me where I live. And it turned out the boys move up to Southern California and go to school at the Catholic school. That's like a stone's throw from my house. And, and so, you know, and then Frank and I, became, you know, we talked much more frequently to the point that we ended up coaching a, a AYSO soccer team together. And my son and the youngest boy, Albert, were, on, were teammates. So kind of cool. And the thing that was crazy, the boys were so young when it happened. I don't think Albert was the youngest one. I don't even think Albert really understood, you know, there'd been a lawsuit and there'd been a trial and that I was their attorney. You know, as far as he knew, I was just a soccer coach. Very, very cool. And they're now, you know, one of them's the oldest, graduated from college and, and getting ready to go to medical school. Uh, the middle boy is getting ready to graduate. He might have been graduating right now, and he wants to go in and be a Navy SEAL. And then the youngest one is in college right now and, and studying business. So, you know very challenging case and and yet at the same time uh very rewarding to to you know make those connections with a family and be able to make a difference for them yeah that's you know one of the things that 
seems to be, you know, when, when I talk to people, this common misconception about trial lawyers and what they do. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone really appreciates it until you need one. And then, you know, you, you start to appreciate the importance, particularly when, you know, it's something where there really needs to be a change, like a defective design and, and those sorts of things. Um, before we came on the podcast, you, you had asked me uh, a bit about my personal injury case, and uh, I, I recounted that I was using it as a training tool for our team so that they understand what injury victims go through. And really that's connected to this whole empathy idea. And, and I, I wanted to ask you as a trial lawyer, because you, you kind of alluded to it, I think, uh, how do you approach building a strong connection with your clients and understanding their unique experiences, challenges, who they were before being injured or, you know, before their family gets torn apart, like the last case you described? And, and then how does that inform your trial strategies in the way you present the case to the jury? I was mentioning it so often when I, when I give presentations on continuing legal education, so often the topics are about the liability issues because, you know, you got to get past liability and causation. Um, but one of the big things is, as I mentioned, I mean, the damages are so big. The injuries are so catastrophic. And, and you've got to have that compassion and empathy. And... And, you know, I like to spend a lot of time with my clients. You know, it's not just meet them the first time they sign up with you and then meet them to prepare them for their deposition a year later. It's a lot of contact. I mean, all my clients have my cell phone. I mean, there was a time when people didn't want to give out their cell phone numbers. But it's like, here you go. You call me or text me anytime. Anything that's going on. If, if you're not getting the results you need, I'll try and help out and find do talk to your doctors or find a doctor who can help. Uh, you know, if if you think you can go back to work, but there's stumbling blocks, you know, and you need help, call me. I'm 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 here to help you. Um, I really like to we really like to dig in with with photos and videos to be able to tell the story because the jury or whoever's paying the money. Okay, if the jury's making the decision or you're at a mediation and you're trying to tell a judge why the case has the value that it does, or you're, you're just talking directly with the defense attorney or an insurance company rep, trying to tell them why they need to pay the multiples of millions that we want, we got to make sure they understand what the person was like beforehand. So we really like to be able to tell that story through and it's not just testimony as they say pictures worth a thousand words and we tell that story with the pictures and the videos and and what they like to do were they outdoorsy did they like to sing did they like to dance what, what they like to fish did they like to hike you know what was it that they did that they can no longer do and so that's a big part of, of really getting to know the client and really understanding. And it takes time, just the bottom line. It takes time to spend time with your client and, and find out who they were. And so that, that's something that I really like to try and emphasize with my clients so I can really tell their story. You know, you, you mentioned continuing education and I wanted to ask you, cause I know that you're actively involved in, in a lot of different professional organizations and share your expertise through lectures and whatnot. Why is it important to you to educate and teach other trial lawyers? You know, something like um, the, your, your firm's trial college, how does that fit within your, your personal mission and why is that important to you? We enjoy, and I like giving back on, on training other lawyers and, and giving them tips and war stories so that they can learn. Uh, you know, before we started our firm's trial college, you know, I still was very active in a number of organizations, write articles that get published, uh, give presentations. And, you know, the reality is if we can make all the other lawyers out there better educated, better ready to go to trial, you know, we all benefit from that. You know, they're going to benefit from it and their client's going to benefit from it. That's a that's a given. But, you know, 
part of it also selfish. Look, if, if they're you, you know, everybody calls calls us, hey, what expert did you use on that case that you just crushed for millions of dollars? Okay, I don't necessarily want someone to go hire an expert I had and, and go mess it up. Go get that expert beat up or, you know, excluded by a court because they weren't given all the information they needed to consider for their opinions. So it's important, you know, also selfishly in that sense of, of make sure people understand what they're doing. And, and, you know, I can tell you almost every mediation I'm in, one of the things we hear is, well, this issue came up in another trial and, and they only got X. I'm like, yeah, well, who was it? You know, and, and they're not us, okay? Maybe they weren't as prepared as they should have been. Maybe they didn't ask for as much as they should have, okay? Maybe they just didn't tell the story the right way. So that's a big reason why, why we like to give back. And in our trial college, you know, we basically have lots of presentations that are videotaped that any plaintiff lawyer can access and learn about. Learn about jury selection. I mean, a lot of these people have never even gone to trial. They all say they're trial lawyers. A lot of these people have never even been to trial, let alone how many juries have they picked. You know, that's a real, it's not just a, a science. Picking a jury is an art. And you've got to know what you're doing, but, but you also need the experience of doing it. So, like, we teach people about jury selection, opening statements, cross-examination, closing arguments. I mean, all those different things, how to do a direct of a liability witness, how to do a direct of a damage witness. I mean, a lot of people don't have that experience. And so it's beneficial to all of us if we can give back to other lawyers and, you know, as much as I think, here I am, I've been practicing for 30 years, and I know it all. I'm the first to tell you I don't know it all. I want to go learn from others. Probably you could give me some great tips, Jason, about things that you do and how you do it. And every time I go to a conference, you know, I want to go learn from other people as well. So as much as I want to teach them what we know and our experiences and how to avoid the pitfalls, I also want to pick up what other people are doing and see what works better or maybe something that you can work into your repertoire and and make make your lawyering that much more effective. So it's really a two-way street on, on why we do it and, and why we think it's important. So one of the things I do love about uh, the plaintiff's trial bar is that there is this you know, support system, whether it's listservs or you know, conferences and through the state trial lawyer associations and then things like what your firm puts on that really is a way of supporting because as everybody does well, it helps the injury victim ultimately, which, you know, is what our mission is all about, helping injury victims. And I know it is the core and central mission of, of your firm. And so that idea of being able to help each other to get the best possible results is just kind of, you know, uh, you don't see that today very much. So it's, I appreciate that so much about the the practice of law and the lawyers that are, are part of this community specifically. It's important because, you know, look, we're all competing for the, the best cases, all right? What's the best case? It's a really weird way of looking at things. The best case tends to be somebody who really had a catas catastrophic event in their life, okay? But, you know, as lawyers, you know, we're all, we all want those cases. Yet, you know, the, the top lawyers in Southern California, I've got all their numbers. I could text them right away or get them on the phone and ask them a question. And they're they're going to take my call and they're going to share information with me and I'm going to do the same for them. And it just, it helps all of us. And it and doesn't have to be the top, the top legal minds in in California or anywhere in the country. It, it can just be, you know, I talked to a guy today. He said, you know, I just started doing plaintiff's work. I've been doing other work for a few years. You know, I really want to, you know, figure out sort of, you know, what's going on and would love to be able to work with you. And, you know, we had had a 15-minute call and we're going to lunch next Wednesday. And that's important. And to develop that relationship and help help him 
and you know, help everyone else out there. I mean, you're, you're right. I don't know to the extent the defense bar does that, but on the plaintiff side of things, it's uh, there's a lot more giving back. You have demonstrated this commitment to improving consumer safety through your practice and by holding wrongdoers accountable um, when, when they cause harm. Can you share an example where your advocacy or your firm's advocacy has resulted in changes or improvements in safety practices within an industry? Yeah, sure thing. It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. And, and I'll give you two examples of that, Jason, of where, you know, there's obviously the money factor. You want to get the most you can for your client, but can you do more? And, and we, at our firm, we really try and do what we call sort of the mon, the non-monetary sort of considerations that, that if we can make a change. And, and two of them, one, I talked about the case Barber, where I represented the three young boys whose, whose parents died. And, and the reason that the jury returned the verdict that they did is because even till the very end of trial, the dealership and its employees and its lawyer would not acknowledge that they messed up. They would not acknowledge that they repaired a tire that should have never been repaired. It should have been tossed away in a scrap heap. And so one of the things, what, what, the jury basically made a finding that they were going to award punitive damages. And in California, that's a second phase of the trial. They make the finding, but then you deal with the dollars next on punitive damages. And so what we told the attorney that night after the first phase of the verdict came in, we said, look, you have an opportunity right now to, to resolve this case. We won't go to a punitive damage phase. You're going you're gonna to pay the verdict. No appeals, no nothing. But you got to agree that you need to implement a training program so that all of your employees have to get trained on what the standards are on tire repairs. And this has to be done on an annual basis. And every new employee who works as a mechanic at your dealership has to go through this training and they have to get a refresher course every year, okay? Because we didn't want what happened to our clients to happen to somebody else. And, and you know, I'll give the dealership and their attorney credit. You know, they fought us on everything, but at that point they agreed. And, um, and, and you know, I think it was also important, you know, we came back the next day to inform the court that we had resolved everything. And we wanted to tell the jury, of course, you always want to talk to the jurors afterwards, but we also wanted to tell the jury what the dealership had agreed to so that the jurors knew that the many weeks that they spent with us in trial, you know, it, it really meant something. So that was, that was one significant area where we thought we could make a difference that was totally separate and apart from the money we, we recovered for our clients. The, the other example I'll give you just happened recently. It was a case we represented a, a young woman named Marissa Freeman, who was at uh, a student at Cal State San Bernardino and if you know anything about San Bernardino, in the early fall, early September, it's hot. It, it's basically out near the desert. It's very hot part of California. And she was not a big athlete, but she was taking a physical education course where they had to uh, go on a run. And the instructor made all kinds of mistakes. Um, and, and they had all these students go on this run and it was over 95 degrees at the time the run started. Uh, she ended up suffering a heat stroke and uh, very, very significant brain injury as a result of the heat stroke. Um, that case started trial. It resolved for a large amount of money in the middle of the trial. But one of the things that was important there, because what we found out during taking all these depositions is that so many of the employees of the university, they didn't either, they didn't know what heat stroke was. They didn't know what the symptoms were. They didn't know what the treatment was. 
they didn't know how to avoid it. And I said, I mean, this run should have never taken place when it did. They could have waited. They could have done it early morning or late day when the temperatures had cooled down. They could have done a better job of monitoring the students. They could have done a better job in how they responded to the situation. So one of the things that we insisted on as part of the resolution of that case was that the entire Cal California State University system, and we're talking 23 campuses and over 500,000 students at any given time, that basically they had to implement a training program so that all employees, you name it, anybody who's going to be doing anything outdoor or strenuous had to go through this training program to learn about how to avoid heat stroke or, or heat illness, you know, before you get to heat stroke. And if someone has symptoms, recognizing the symptoms and how to deal with it immediately, that's the key, is to get someone's body temperature down fast. And it has to happen fast. And so that was a big part of the resolution of that Freeman case that they had to commit to it and the, and the university did. And so those are just two examples. There's many more, but those are you know two pretty significant examples where in addition to the money, we had to make sure that the defendant changed their ways to make people safer. That was such an incredible contribution that most people don't really realize about what trial lawyers do. Uh, so given your extensive trial experience, uh, I, I know that you've got to have incredible advice for young trial lawyers who are just starting out their career. So I wanted to ask you if you had a top five list of lessons or principles that have guided you throughout your practice that you would share with younger lawyers to help them. Definitely got five and they're all sort of, I guess they're all, all sort of interrelated, but I would say in the, in the line of work that we do, one of the very important at the top is to be tenacious. Okay. You've got to, you know, this is an adversarial process and while you try and do your best to be civil and get along with the other side, you know, you've got to be aggressive for sure. You just, it, you've, and, and like I said, a lot of these concepts I think are interrelated, but this is not for people who want no controversy in their, their life. This is not for people who just want to be on cruise control. This is, you know, full court press from the time you take on a client and you f investigate and you file a lawsuit. So I think tenacity is paramount. Another thing that I think is important, kind of what we've talked about some of this, Jason, about the, you know, giving back and teaching is, is also to keep learning. Okay. I, as a 30 year lawyer need to keep learning. I need to know the latest and greatest. What are the new cutting edge issues with traumatic brain injuries? I mean, I have a lot of brain injured clients. I want to know the latest and greatest. I want to know what's going on. I want to hear from other people about how they approach jury selection. Okay. Maybe they've got a little twist on things that I've never thought about. Um, every aspect from liability to damages, you know, cars keep changing. They're getting a lot better. Okay. We're, we're seeing all these electronic safety systems, uh, collision avoidance technology to cause your car to automatically slow down before a collision or to keep you in your lane or you name it to avoid pedestrians. But this is all new cutting edge technology and you've got to stay on top of it and learn about it so that if you, and, and you know, and while it's getting better, there's still plenty of defects, all right? We see it all the time, but they're changing. The nature of the defects are changing, okay? So to keep learning, very critical. Um, I, I would say another thing that's important for people is, you know, you mix in the aggressiveness but on t that goes hand in hand with that is you got to be trustworthy, okay? You've got to be able to deal with the other side, with defense attorneys, and have them know that they can trust you when you say something. When you reach an agreement, you've got the agreement. 
okay, that you're going to hold true to what you say. And, you know, your word is your bond. And, and if you start getting the reputation around town that you can't be trusted, you're going to have a lot of problems. A lot of problems, okay? So um, I would also say, and this is kind of related to be tenacious, is don't be complacent. I guess they kind of are the opposite of each other, but it's just reinforcing, you know, when someone trusts you with the biggest tragedy they've ever had in their life and that they are relying on you, let's face it, to get them money, okay, so that their life can be as normal as possible or as comfortable as possible, that's yeah, a big responsibility. So you can't be complacent when you when you take on these cases. You got to really just keep 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 at it. Uh, and and the sort of the next thing I would talk about is you know pay attention to the details because the details are important. You can't overlook the details. You know it could be the simplest thing in a police report. Make sure you really know what it says. Make sure you really know what a witness said. Okay, to making sure you really know what was going on with a product or what was the nature of the truck driver's negligence or the way that the trucking company trained their driver. I mean, all these things is very important to pay attention to the details. The medical side of things, you've got to know the medicine. You don't have to be a doctor, but you've got to learn the medicine. And you've got to talk to your experts to make sure you understand the medicine. So, you know liability, knowing what your engineers are going to say, knowing every in and out of the reconstruction, knowing all the ins and outs of the past medical treatment and the future medical needs. There's a lot of details there, and you got to be on top of all those. So, you know, those are kind of the five, and, and we did talk about empathy and, and compassion. you got to have that. I mean, that if you're going to do plaintiff's work, you, you, you've got to have it. It's, it's going to make you get along with your clients better. It's going to be, make you be able to tell their story better. Um, so those, you know, like I said, there's probably a few more that I'm, I'm forgetting at the moment, but I'd say those are kind of the five or six big ones that stick out to me. A couple more questions and we'll wrap up. Um, looking at the future, what do you think are going to be some of the most significant challenges or opportunities in the realm of your area of practice, catastrophic injury and wrongful death cases you've got? AI now, I was reading an article this morning just about the, the people, pro, you know, forecasting that that is going to be a potentially dangerous thing in, in a lot of different ways. You've got autonomous vehicles, you've got technology and in, you know, um, medical practice now. How, how do you anticipate the practice evolving to address those emerging trends? You know, one thing that we see, Jason, on these emerging trends, for instance, when you bring up autonomous vehicles, I mean, personally, I don't know, would you get in a car that there's no driver? I mean, I wouldn't. I just, you know, there's some, there's some bad drivers out there, but I'm not going to trust some machine. And we're seeing problems right now with Tesla, which seems to be kind of at the forefront with some of the autonomous driving features. And there are problems. And we're hearing about the problems. Um, but what goes hand in hand with that, with the autonomous vehicle, there, were, there has been an effort for preemption, basically meaning that asking the lawmakers to say, we as manufacturers can't be sued for this so-called cutting edge technology that we're bringing to the world. And, and that, that's a terrible, terrible, idea and preemption's been around for a lot there's it's been a much discussed topic it's a it's a legal topic on its own that i could spend an hour hours on um so that's an emerging trend that needs to be fought back and and there is pushback happening and and so i i see i see technology and then the manufacturer's desire to to have preemption that basically blocks them from being able to be sued for a defect. That's, that's the bottom line. They're trying to avoid having to be responsible for tort liability. So that, that's, that and technology I see as, as some of the big trends. You know, and then you hear about you know, some states wanting to have no-fault insurance. Okay? No-fault basically is going to have a, a cap 
and it would change, you know, it, it might help someone who's involved in a fender bender, but it's not going to help somebody who's catastrophically injured. So, it, you know, we see these, these efforts being made to try and reduce the ability of victims to recover f fully for what's happened to them. And so that's been an ongoing battle since I've been practicing for 30 years, and I think it's going to continue to be a battle, and, and we see different things happening in different states. Your state, Florida, I think they're just trying to push some of this stuff through, and it might have actually happened. So it's a challenge for sure. Um, and, you know, and, and it, ultimately, though, at the, at the end of the day is – being able to have access to juries and jury trials and being able to hold you know corporations or negligent individuals accountable for the harm that they cause and so just continuing to make sure that we have access to courtrooms here in California you know we, we're not seeing major issues in that department um, some states yes and, and it can be an issue. So protecting the right to jury trials and, and being able to get into trial and try cases and, and having jurors make decisions, uh, that, that continues to be an ongoing issue. So I, I would say technology, preemption, access to juries, um, those are big issues. By the way, did you see the article recently about the lawyer in New York who submitted a brief using chat? GBT. It just came out. It was, I saw it over the weekend. This lawyer was representing a client injured on a plane somehow or another. I don't remember all the details. And the, the airline was basically saying they shouldn't be able to go forward with the claim. So the lawyer basically used artificial intelligence to write a brief. The only problem is, according to this article that I read, every case that was cited in the brief didn't actually exist. So there were case names, case citations, there were quotes, and it was all just made up non-existent. So talking about the effects of technology, it's going to be interesting to see where this artificial intelligence issue takes us. I think it's fraught with disaster. It is amazing technology, but the problem is, is that what ChatGPT spits out is uh, an amalgamation of everything on the internet and it can pull stuff that you don't want it to pull, like, you know, racist in material that's put out on the web or, you know, material that's anti-LGBTQ. I mean, there's, aside from the idea that it could pull case names out of thin air and create quotes that's that's quite scary but certainly there there's things that it is incredibly good at but it is scary uh the possibility of misuse of that and especially you know in and i worry about my kids and they're they're in their mid-20s you know using it in a way that makes you use your brain less you know because using it to augment yourself, to make yourself better. Um, I, I can see how that makes sense, but using it because you're lazy or, you know, to write a brief, frankly, and then not read through and make sure you shepherdize all the cases in it and check it, that, that that's laziness, right? I mean, that, that, that is, is a real problem. I would not want to be that New York attorney. My, the, the article mentioned that the, the judge is setting a hearing on, possible sanctions and uh, that that attorney cannot be uh, sleeping well at the moment no for sure um, so a couple more questions um, and this one's a little bit self-serving but I always ask it to trial lawyers who um, I interview what are the most difficult issues that you and your firm face today when you're settling cases is it dealing with Medicare is it dealing with liens is it dealing with government benefits um, you know what 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 to you is one of the most difficult things to deal with when you've settled a case? Well, aside from getting the decision maker to be willing to write a check that's big enough, that's obviously, that's omnipresent issue. But, you know, if, if you do your homework and you work up your case 
correctly, you're going to get the results. But, you know, you, you basically talked in your question, Jason, right there. Is dealing with benefits and liens can, can really be a real bear. Um, out here in California, it just takes so long to get a response about what the final lien is. I mean, months. It can be months. You're doing everything right. You've, you've stayed in touch with them. And then when it comes final time, what is your claim and how much? It just it can take forever. And then getting with them to negotiate that lien, it's a necessary part of the job. It, it, it just can be, it can be very challenging. The other thing is also, as you mentioned, government benefits. So I've had a number of cases recently where I've had clients who are on California's version of Medicaid. We call it Medi-Cal out here. And, and yeah, they're recovering some money, but nowhere near what the true value of their, their injury is. And we want to make sure that we can get them to continue receiving the benefits. And so we're looking, you know, we're setting up special needs trusts on some occasions. We're setting up conservatorships on some occasions. Uh, sometimes there's an amount of money where they, they agree that I'm okay losing these benefits. But they've really got to do the analysis and, and see what that is and, and see if it's going to work. So th those are definitely the challenges. Once the case is settled, it's usually not over. It's, it, you know, you're, you're kind of rounding third base at that point, and, and there's still a lot to be done to make sure your client's protected and that they, they fully understand you know, their options and, and their obligations. We call that the case after the case, but I think the, the key, and you hit on that at the very end, is educating the client so the client really understands these things. Actually, I wrote a book for injury victims that's going to be published this summer that really sort of allows a lawyer to say, you know, here's here's some information. Because I think oftentimes clients don't really understand all of these things and then all of it gets thrown at them at the time of settlement. And it can be overwhelming trying to understand that um, in the midst of settling the, the personal injury case. I know just from my own personal experience when I settled my case, that was difficult enough, even knowing, you know, having spent 20, 25 years you know, assisting injury victims, explaining all these issues still was tough for me and being a lawyer to, to deal with it, I'm, you know, in my own case. So I know that that's a challenge for people is really having that solid understanding of the impact that that settlement may have when it comes to government benefits or the liens that are being asserted against the, the personal injury case. No doubt. I totally agree with you. And, and I look forward to reading your book. I mean, I think, you know, client education is so huge. I mean, there's you know, I think it's just be straightforward with them and give them all the information. Okay, you don't want them calling you back in five years and say, "Hey, I'm facing this issue. You never told me about it. Uh, you know, what do I do?" I think you got to really educate your clients throughout the process, and then particularly once the case is resolved, so they really know what's going on and and what their options are. It's a it's a big issue and it's a big obligation but it's it's important because once that you know how it is and once the case is done and they don't really want to they don't want to think about their lawsuit anymore they want to kind of move on with their life and they don't necessarily want to be emailing with me all the time or texting with me all the time so we really make sure that when we wish them the best and give them give them their check or help them out with a structured settlement or whatever it may be that we're doing to help them, education is just critical. Uh, last question I always ask, and um, it's open-ended, so answer it however you want. What's your view as a trial lawyer? My view. My view as a trial lawyer is, you know, we're, we're really privileged to, to represent the people that we do and it can be a very rewarding line of work and really trying to make a difference in people's lives. So my view is, you know, take it seriously and, and enjoy 
not only enjoy what you're doing, but but respect the the privilege of what you get to do for your clients because you are going to make a difference in their lives, not just money, but peace of mind to the extent that you can. Uh, you know, we, we can't undo an injury and we can't bring back somebody, but uh, we can try and make things as good as we can for people. And, and I think that's a critical issue is, is really just taking care of people and, and giving it your all because, you know, when they sign up with you, they're, that's what they're expecting. They're expecting you to give it your all and do your best for them. And my view is that, that you know, it, I enjoy doing it, and I think it's important that you have to do it. And, and when you do that, you know, it makes being a trial lawyer that much more rewarding. And um, being able to have clients who, who are, you know, truly grateful, and they're only going to be grateful if you take care of them in all aspects. So I would say that that's, that's my view as a trial lawyer. It's interesting that you said privilege, because I always talk to our team about the opportunity and privilege we get to help injury victims as, uh, you know, in what we do each day, because there's not a lot of things that you do for a living that really can have that positive impact in people's lives, particularly people that have been through something very tragic by the time they get to our doorstep or your doorstep, you know, that that's something to be proud of and to derive some pleasure that, hey, I know that what we are doing ultimately is going to help this person move on from a very difficult situation. Absolutely. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about early on, Jason, about, you know, bringing our love of sports to this line of work. You know, you, you, you have your preseason, your prep, you know, it's game time. You know, do you make adjustments at halftime? Do you make the right adjustments? Do you continue to just go full bore and, and get the victory and then savor the victory? And, and you know, it's, it's great to get victories, but you also got to savor the victory. And you got to help your clients savor the victory and we savor the victory. As we know, that's a time-consuming, stressful line of work and we all have families and try not to bring too much of the job and stress of that home. And so you got you to enjoy and appreciate the good moments, not just for your own family and your own firm, but also for your clients. And uh, it, is, it is truly a privilege. And, it, and it's a huge, you know, it's a, it's a huge obligation and not to be taken lightly. Adam, if someone uh, listening to the podcast wants to get in touch with you for your wisdom or advice or co-counsel a case or refer a case to you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? You know, I'll give people my cell phone right here. It's 310-871-4536. Don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us on the internet very easily. Our emails are all there. Um, we're always around and very reachable to talk about strategy, cases, you name it, we're around. Feel free to reach out. All right, we'll include all of your contact info in the show notes from today's episode. And thanks again for taking the time to be with me today, Adam, and we'll see everyone next time on Trial Review. But before we wrap up, can I give you a plug? Hey, absolutely, always, always love that. All right, so th this is, you know, we talked about one of the most challenging parts in cases is after the settlement is reached and you've got to deal with the liens and you've got to deal with everything that comes with that. And, and Jason's company, Synergy, is excellent. I can't, I can't give you guys enough kudos. Uh, I've been rep working with a, a team of people. Sort of my main contact is Brandon. But, but there's a whole slew of people that work for you, and they're just very responsive. Uh, they've been creative. Uh, they've been tenacious back to our tenacious uh, prong, uh, and, and it's been really helpful. So uh, I would tell anybody that is in that position and they're trying to wrap up liens that you just think there's just no way this is going to have a good outcome, they got to get people who are real pros involved. And, and Jason, your, your company, I've been super impressed. Great to hear that. And all the things you've described are things that we celebrate every day. We, you know, on Teams, 
we see the results being posted and everybody just cheers because we know how much of a difference that ultimately makes to an injury victim when you get a lien waived or you know, a significant reduction because all those dollars, and I know it in my own case, having negotiated and resolved my own lien, uh, so I know it intimately, uh, how, how much of a difference that makes. So it's, it's great to hear and get that feedback from you. I, I so much appreciate that. Absolutely. We really enjoy working with you guys. Thanks again, Adam, for joining me today. Hey, thank you. Enjoy the time. Thank you for tuning in to Trial Lawyer View. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion and encourage you to tune in to our next episode for more helpful insights about your practice. This podcast is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Visit SynergySettlements.com to learn more about how we allow trial lawyers to focus on what they do best.